you know, this is the way the, the world operates, the galaxies, the smallest molecule to the largest of galaxies, it's all based on interdependence. There's no such thing as a separate entity, right? We're no different than that. We are relational creatures. We are designed to be in relationship. All the science is saying that and all the religions are saying it's about the experience, it's about the journey, it's about the process, right? So I'm hoping something like this reawakens that, that kind of awareness in people that that is our essential nature. We got to get closer to what we're supposed to be doing instead of going down this road of, of kind of isolation and just, you know, all about self. Hello and welcome, folks. Strange times, uh, but lots to lots to find in strange places. So uh, wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing, whether it's an issue with your health or the your finances or your fears, uh, you know, turn as as you'll learn in this conversation with George Fowler, turn towards somebody that uh, that you can, uh, but you'll hear plenty from him about that. So I want to jump into a couple of things before we get started. I've got uh, a number of directions to point you. First of all, welcome. This is The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Thanks for joining. So the first thing I want to get to is the music, and uh, the, the theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And today the featured band is Keanu Leaves. And uh, their, their song Anti-Gravity Machine is what you heard the very first clip. The second music clip is from Modern Nations. But uh, Keanu Leaves, their song uh, anti-gravity machine in full will be played after the episode so be sure to hang out listen to that this came out in 2019 and uh i know some folks that worked on that record i'm pretty sure i hope i don't mess this up audio styles taylor tatch worked on this album and uh taylor's an all-around badass we're doing some recording right now actually uh so kiana leaves thanks guys that's cool good stuff yeah check out the song also, if you check out the, the links in the liner notes of the podcast, you'll find uh, a links, to, links to Modern Nations, links to the bands, links to all the participants. So be sure to check out, uh, scroll down, and, and you can kind of explore all the other directions this thing points you in. Okay, second thing is uh, I want to introduce you to today's participant. So George Fowler is a, uh, is a fascinating human being. And one of the reasons why, as wild as it is, I actually scheduled this this time with him to have the conversation before all this COVID outbreak. And it just worked in some kind of serendipitous way that 
everybody, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if we took some kind of a reading of the level of stress of the world, of course, it's all elevated right now. So stress is a primary concern um, for, for anybody, anybody who's alive right now. <laughs> um, and, and George Fowler wrote a book about it along with uh, Heather Wright. The book is called Sacred Stress, A Radically Different Approach to Using Life's Challenges for Positive Change. And as, as I say in the podcast, all these, you know, conversations about positive change, we, we, we need to be careful, of course, not to let our framework or framing in of this uh, uh, stress as kind of a positive growth-oriented experience. That doesn't need to negate the fact that it, it comes with some very real struggles. So holding the tension of those is extremely important, I think, through these times. Because, uh, you know, one thing that Jung said that I liked very much was that um, one of the most, I forget the word that was used, but one of the most unconscious things that we can do is to imagine that others um, see the world as we do, share our psychology. And they, they just, they don't. So where you are is where you are. And if you can use that to empathize with others and connect, great. But if not, you're in that vacuum that George was talking about and... Uh, that doesn't exist because, again, <laughs> we're all interdependent. So let me tell you a little bit about George. Here's his bio. Prior to a career in the field of mental health, George spent 20 years as a New York City firefighter and New York City police officer. George received his master's in marriage and family therapy from Iona College, where he graduated at the top of his class. He holds a BA in political science from Queens College. His experience as FDNY peer counselor particularly following the events of 9-11, sparked his passion to help those impacted by trauma. He's a certified trainer, supervisor, therapist in Emotionally Focused Therapy, EFT, and founder of the New York City, excuse me, and founder of the New York Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy, where he serves as president. George was a first responder at the Twin Towers on 9-11, and that kind of trauma certainly reverberated in some way across the world, but for those that were on the front lines, it's certainly a different experience. So he, he through that, saw that, uh, saw the needs, the interpersonal needs, the relational needs that manifest as a result of trauma, and he's made it his commitment to work with that. So I, I'm, again, you can see why I, I wanted, uh, to talk to him in the first place, and of course, it's especially meaningful to talk to him right now. So thank you, George, for your time and your willingness to uh, to have a, a chat with me. GeorgeFowler.com, G-E-O-R-G-E-F-A-L-L-E-R.com is where you can find him. Also, check out his podcast, Four Play Radio, Couples and Sex Therapy. It's with Laurie Watson and George Fowler. And... Uh, I highly recommend. I'm looking through all the. All, I've listened to a bit, and of course, all the titles are great. It's a short podcast, <laughs> which is, of course, very different from this one. <laughs> Each episode is about twenty-five to thirty minutes. It 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 everything from commitment to forgiveness, faking orgasms, feeling too tired for sex. Uh, it looks like they cover all their bases, so check out that uh, podcast if you're uh, if you're interested. 
Um, so before we go into the conversation, I'd like to take a minute and tell you about uh, the sponsor of the podcast. So the podcast is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences in Houston. And full disclosure, it's uh, <laughs> it's the practice that my wife and I started. So uh, it's it's a it's a hard earned sponsorship. So while I've mentioned our work before. I've never really stopped to tell you who we are and what we do. We, we are practices um, working to help the body, mind, and spirit of those who come to seek us out. You know, each week, whether it's on the podcast or in my office, I talk with a bunch of folks. And certainly the anxieties are, um, uh, there's a variety you know, of, of reasons or... Um, Know, kind of causes for the anxiety. But the essence here is that the way that our you know, body, mind, and spirit respond to stress, whether that's the stress created from a virus or in response to a fear about the virus or a very real fears about finances, we, we know that we need support on all those various levels. So whether the support comes in the form of immune support or psychological support, relational support, um, education and support, what we at the center want to do is provide a space for, um, for people to come and get all those needs met. So with the, the changes, we've adapted a bit and given life to some ideas that have been, uh, you know, Certainly, we're going to come online, but they they definitely come on in times of crisis, or they came on in a time of crisis. So, my wife and I started the center because we're passionate about how um, that wellness is an option. And she and her team approach wellness via Chinese medicine and acupuncture, and I and my team approach it through psychotherapy. And some of us, some of those who work with us utilize just one of these modalities and the others partake in all of them integratively. But regardless of how our services are used, the wellness of the folks who come work with us is considered head to toe because we believe the process of healing is best approached as a full body experience. Specifically for this physically distanced time, we want you to know that we have options for you. So first thing to know, we're offering frontline support to folks out there helping to tackle this COVID virus. Please share any of this information with the doctors, nurses, and other frontliners, uh, they can reach out to us and we'll offer a deeply discounted um, session, brief session, so that they can vent. Well, really, it's, it's to have a safe place to connect with an experienced clinician that can make space to, um, to make sense of, to try to make sense of all this chaos. Uh, second, we want you to know that we're pulling together wellness care packages, what we're calling wellness care packages. And they're full of immune-boosting items that are usually easy to find, but now they're simply sold out everywhere. And as clinicians, we have access to some trusted resources you may not. So we've done the searching and the vetting and the finding, and these sets have been curated to not only be functionally helpful, but also enjoyable to receive. So they can be given as gifts, and um, if you check them out, you can go look at the Instagram page on the center, and there'll be more information. So if you're curious about these wellness packages, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed that 
I'm in a home where my wife is kind of digging into this and trying to figure out how to support our systems as, again, as, as my team's working to do something similar on a psychological level. You can text us at 713-526-4444. Just text Wellness Care Package or Frontline, and you can be, somebody will reach out to you, and, uh, and we'll get back to you. So the company itself, is, the motto is grow deep, grow tall, and grow with us, because we, we want you to do that. We want you to grow. And whether it's through this podcast or psychotherapy, group work, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, food therapy guidance, or these amazing care packages, we feel strongly that we're all in this together, and we are. So what happens is the culture intervenes and seeks to address any issues that's happening in the collective, and I I think this is one of those. So again, text us at 713-526-4444. Uh, For information, you can text Frontline or Wellness, and we'll get back to you. So thank you for being here and listening, and thanks, George Fowler, for the time. And for now, we'll leave it there. Hang in there. You mind if we jump in? Jump in. Let's do it. Your book couldn't have come at a better time. I appreciate what you uh, what you guys did by writing it, you and Heather. Um, again, you and I scheduled this a while back, and right. uh, and it's just hitting squarely right where we need it. We we need to hear about stress and emotions. And as I'm thinking through, I want to do two things, and then we'll see where we go. The first. I'd like you to introduce yourself for the audience, anybody who's not uh, come across your work. And that may be by way of part two of this question, which is one of the incredible advantages of speaking with you is, of of course, your life narrative. And... I, I, when I was taking all my notes and digging into this work, I, I kept coming back to this comment that, yeah, but George has experienced things that not many people have in the professional work that you've done from your work with the Fire Department, Police Department of New York, and then as a marriage and family therapist. So I, I wonder if we could dive into some of that personal experience that um, that set you up to be a person to hold space for people in the way that you do today. Cool with you? Sounds good, yeah. All right, launch out, man. I'll ask questions as we go. All right, let's have some fun here because these are some crazy days that we're in for sure. So I'm George Fowler. I'm a licensed and managed family therapist. I'm specially trained in emotionally focused therapy, which I'm a trainering and the president of New York Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy. Prior to my career as a therapist, I was a New York City police officer and then a New York City firefighter during 9-11. So, and Heather Wright and myself came up with a book called Sacred Stress, which was really just trying to, it was some of it was both of our stories, but for me personally, just around how 9-11 shaped how I saw the world and pushed me down this different pathway of 
talking about feelings and vulnerabilities, things my whole life I was trained not to engage with or really share. Mm -hmm. So, but wow, I mean, talking about it being relevant to what's happening with the coronavirus. And I mean, I've never seen, I, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. I got my firefighters still traded that I could just, uh, you know, focus and block things out. And this thing is just, and this is like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, this makes dot 11 seem like uh, just a bump in the road, just the massive amount of, of helplessness and fear. And, you know, it breaks my heart to hear people dying alone. And even during 9-11, I could think of the worst of times. I could go see my family. I could see my friends. I could have a drink. I could eat a meal. I, I had moments of just resetting with people I loved and with this social distancing. I mean, this mm -hmm. is just really creating a level of massive isolation, unlike anything I didn't even think was possible to do. It's crazy to hear you say that because for for so many of the folks that I work with, 9-11 is a is is one of those signifiers. It's like, well, I, I lived through that. I experienced that. But most people are 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 setting up that comparison between 9/11 and what's happening today except most people I talk about to were not first responders at 9/11 so to hear you say that it, it's pretty intense for me you know i to be honest it, some things i've seen in, in my career as a firefighter have been pretty intense but to think about the courage it takes to you know, just work in a supermarket to go in, not knowing who you're going to encounter, to come home, not know who you're going to give it to. If you did catch something to somebody you'd love, I mean, just the, there's no break from this thing. You know, so I think, yes, you're right more than ever to just have a mindset around stress and, and how do we cope with it in healthier ways? I think it's so relevant now more than ever before. Well, you, you, you had been trained as a, therapist before 9-11. Yes. And so you had that to fall into, but you also then were making space for all these other folks that were similarly traumatized. How did you care for yourself through that fallout? Well, let's backtrack a second. You know, my plan and my illusion of having control over my own life, this idea of I always was interested in psychology. I was the fifth of eight children growing up. I was always somewhat of a role of a mediator in my family of origin. So my plan was to have something once I retire from the fire department, just to have another career things I was interested in. Mm -hmm. I had no plan on work with firefighters. They did not like talking about their feelings. I didn't want to talk about them with their feelings. So I didn't want even the guys to know I was doing going back to school for psychology. You know, but like all families, they secrets have a way of coming out. And I remember coming into the firehouse one day to go to my locker to change and they had spray painted flowers and they, they, they wrote Cupid on top of it. From, so that day moving forward, I was called Cupid, Dr. Love, all these different nicknames that, you know, sound funny. They were actually quite annoying, but I couldn't show them that it annoyed me or they would have kept doing it. So I just had to pretend it was no big deal. And, uh, you know, and then 9-11 happened and the New York City Fire Department lost 343 firefighters, which to date is the, the largest loss of life in one moment in the history of a world of, you know, emergency personnel. 
So obviously, the, my fire department got turned upside down. We were all impacted, but the fire department especially was impacted. And, you know, it was in that desperation that I got involved. I still worked at Ground Zero, but I was like, I do have this training as a therapist. I should help out. And I was doing what they call critical incident stress debriefings, going to a firehouse that lost 15 firefighters and just trying to figure out how best we could help them. And there's some predictable things you'd expect after disaster, alcohol, post-traumatic stress, anxiety disorders. You know, and another thing you would expect is a marital discord, stressed out relationship. So that's what we started seeing. But an interesting thing is a lot of people wanted to see the individual firefighters, but not a lot of want, people wanted to see the couples and the families. There's something about bigger groups that even was intimidating to therapists. So that was like the, the, the a time in my life where I, I said to myself, I don't want to see firefighters, but nobody was willing to see these firefighters. There was a need and there wasn't people stepping up for the need. So in my neat, naiveness in that moment, I was like, all right, what's the worst? I, I, I raised my hand in this big group. I said, I'll see some of these couples. And then overnight on my days off, I was seeing 10 couples, you know, every, every Thursday. Whoa. And, uh, it was pretty intense and people were yelling and screaming and I didn't really know what was going on. So, but it is, and I think most therapists can attest to this. It's, it's actually through this, it's a collaborative approach as people were trying to put words to their struggles. It was helping me put words to my struggles. A lot of the, mm -hmm. a lot of the things I was struggling with my wife, you know, I talk about this in sacred stress. You know, there's a saying, there's a sign in every firehouse that says, whatever you see here stays here. There's a real division between what you do at work and what you want to share when you go home. Because mm -hmm. you don't want to burden your partner with all these stresses. But what we don't talk about is the cost of that, right? That when you don't share, <coughs> especially what's happening for you in these more emotional places, it starts to create really major distance in your relationship. So that's what happened to me and my wife after 9-11. I was trying to protect her by not talking about anything. She was trying to protect me. She knew I was burdened and doing a million different things. So she wasn't sharing what was going on. And before you know it, despite trying to love each other and serve each other, we were growing further apart at a time when we need each other the most. So it was actually in my work with couples and helping them find words to talk about their inner world, their emotions, that it helped me start finding my own words and, you know, start having these difficult conversations, but essential conversations to really making us feel more safe. Well, I, I appreciate you going there and I know a few things about you now cause I've read your book. So I'll jump in the, uh, the pool with you as a fellow withdrawer, you know, that, and who knows? I mean, I, I, I get it that, men kind of wear that medal of honor uh, all the time. I, I, as a psychotherapist, I say, I see plenty of women who withdraw as well. Sure. But uh, here we are a couple of withdrawers and I, I want to try to help people make sense of why that, <laughs> and myself included, why that's not an effective strategy when it comes to stress management. Well, I, I think we need to have a balance. It's incredibly effective in certain areas and not so effective in others, yeah. right? We wouldn't be here as a species if we didn't learn how to be cool, how to push aside fear, how to regulate our emotions. It's really an adaptive strategy, right? Trying to avoid getting overwhelmed by emotions, really 
putting the needs of others before your own. There's some huge strengths to these ability to turn down your emotions. So that's the first thing I try to to let therapists know that you really got to see the strengths in this, in this action, in this protection, because it's also how withdrawers feel good about themselves. It's how they get promoted. It's how they make a lot of money. The world loves this ability to stay calm under pressure. You know, I heard, I, I, I come from a community of people that work with trauma and attachment. And years ago, a mentor of mine said that when it was Americans, I want to say it was Americans, when Americans were asked to judge the attachment style of infants or toddlers, they voted the avoidantly attached kids to be better, you know, better babies. And so we really do affirm that, uh, you know, rugged individualism and suck it up mentality here. You think about what it takes to go head out west on your own, facing all these trials and tribulations, <laughs> and to be able to, you really need that ability. Yeah. So I love that in war with yours. I don't want with yours to hear that this is something bad or broken in them because it's adaptive and resilient, and we want them to hold on to it. We really just want them to become more flexible, right? When there are moments where they don't, when this ability to put on armor to stop bad things from happening gets in a way of you expressing more vulnerable sides of the view of some good things, then, then it becomes counterproductive. So that's really what I'm trying to get with yours to do. If I could honor the function of their protection, they're more open to seeing the costs of it. And it's about seeing both sides. Yeah. And you're and you're a hell of a lot more likely to draw somebody out when you actually affirm their attempts to self-protect. I mean, who wants to have their their only mode for protecting taken from them? Exactly. When you don't even have a new way yet of knowing how to do it. And too many therapists in a rush to to take away defenses. And, you know, that, that's not such a great place. So yes, I mean, I start off with connection, but, but to your, to your main part of the question is it is, I mean, research is so clear on this, that the more we put up defenses and cut off parts of ourselves because they're not convenient or they won't work so well in our narrative, the more we start to lose ourselves over time. Mm-hmm. Right? When we don't, the cost of putting on that armor is lower levels of engagement, right? So I remember growing up when, as a little boy, I would fall down and cry. My father was around. He would say, you better stop crying, right? I will give you something to cry about. I learned to stop crying. And that was pretty adaptive when I played football or you know, I, mm-hmm. I went into fire departments. But then it creates problems when I see my wife's crying. Because I don't really know what to do with those tears because I've shut off my own tears. So the cost of that protection really then starts to get in a way. I, I like to, I, I talk about this in a book I wrote called uh, True Connection. There are three levels of connection, right? Three roads, I'd say. There's the high road, which is great sex, great dinners, the honeymoon, just why we get into relationship, all the good stuff that's that's high energy. There's the middle road, which is the bills, cutting the lawn, the you know, work, all the logistics in life that you just gotta do to make life work. And then there's the low road, which is more of our vulnerabilities, our insecurities, you know, the things that a lot of us don't get help talking about. Mm. Couples that do all three 
have the best relationships. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't grow up knowing how to talk about the low road stuff, right? So we just want to stay in this honeymoon period, but that's not realistic. And before you know it, we're lost in the middle road of the grind of life. And when you're lost in the middle road, the distance starts to increase. And the problem with that is that you want to go on a vacation once a year or something to kind of spark it up again. But then when you go on vacation, you start fighting there too. And before you know it, you'll lose the magic of why you were with each other in the first place. The more you're lost on the middle road, the more you need the low road conversations. Hmm. That's a good image. It, 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 uh, as, as you were talking about it, it was bringing up the, the way you kind of drew this dual structure when it comes to stress in sacred, sacred stress, mm-hmm. the, the two different kinds of stress. And in service to, I think, tending to a time, and I, and I need to say this, that talk about duality. This is a, this is a weird-ass time because, I mean, I, I lived in New York. I, I'm talking to people in New York right now. I'm, I'm talking to people in areas of the country that are hit pretty hard currently by what's happening with COVID. And so I want to be tender to the differences in experience right now, because there, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and recognize that there are some people who are not able to find a home, there are some people whose health is compromised. There are some people who are in an abusive relationship and I fuck it all, but I can't imagine what that's like right now. And my heart goes out to every one of these folks. Then there's also folks that are having this transformative experience right now because they're connecting with their kids in ways they've never been present enough to do so. Right. So, so with that said, I mean, that's almost like a, a disclaimer that I, that I don't want to speak in positivistic terms about this experience in a, in an attempt to romanticize something. I'm, yes. I'm very grounded in the intensity and the enormous burden that the world is holding. And I, I see a lot of patients every week and people are having these profound experiences. Granted, I'm in Houston and from, from all estimates, we're really going to peak in anywhere from three to six weeks down mm-hmm. here. And currently it's a- April 2nd. And so we're, we're a little time off. So the folks that I'm working with aren't necessarily personally affected as much yet, certainly not as New York is being affected. Right. So c- can we tend to this kind of misconception about stress a little bit? Sure. So even going back in time, you know, one of the Hans Sully's was one of the original researchers in stress. And he came up with a really holistic framework for stress. He broke stress down into distress, which is negative stress, and eustress, which is positive stress, which is really a healthy way of saying, let's identify what type of stress, and then we could really understand if we need more of it or less of it. The problem over time is stress just came to describe distress. And people started to develop a negative perception of stress. That stress is something bad. It's going to kill you. The best thing you can do with stress is work out or eat right or go on vacation. But it's all about mitigating and reducing stress levels. The problem with that is it misses the opportunity in stress. 
which that's what you stress is all about. We wouldn't be here. How we grow, how we change, the best things in life all have something to do with stress. So we really do need to, to re-examine our relationship with stress. The research, Kelly McGonigal does a lot of great work on mm -hmm. stress, and she talks about this is a fact, that if you believe you're stressed out, which most of us do, then stress is negatively impacting your health. So if you believe it, it to be true, the cortisol that's ravaging your body, I mean, a fight or flight response is supposed to be temporary, right? Think about a tiger comes out, your, your body mobilizes with adrenaline and cortisol to go into action, and then it's supposed to calm down afterwards. The problem in modern society is we're being chased by a lion 24 hours a day, right? And we're not, our nervous systems aren't getting a chance to kind of relax. So that's why it's so important to think about your relationship to stress, your mindset, that if you actually see stress as you can start seeing the opportunity in stress, if you make room for the, the necessary elements of stress, that you need that in your life, it literally changes physiologically how your, your body responds to this. So to make it as simple, the, there's a typical stress response, and then there's what we call a challenge response to stress. A challenge response is what I did as a firefighter. Most people are running away from a fire. I would run towards the fire. My body would see the opportunity to help to save people to make a difference. The interesting thing is if you look at my blood, my blood would look different than somebody having a stress response, a fight or flight mm -hmm. response. They'd have high levels of cortisol. What would you, you'd see in my nervous system would be lower levels of cortisol and higher levels of oxytocin and uh, DHEA hormones, which are hormones that are calming the nervous system down. So literally, same event, the only thing that changes is the person's mindset to the event. And that difference makes all the difference if it becomes physiologically healthy or unhealthy for us. I just hit you with a lot there. So no, no, I want to add to it because it, it, an image came up from your book, which kind of blew my mind was you referenced something about the Vietnam war when people were set up on posts and that the, the, superior officers kind of messed up by making them guard the post individually. Would you speak about that? Because that relational piece is incredibly important as well as the interpretive piece. Yes. I mean, by far the worst predictor to outcome is isolation. And by far the best predictor for stress is relationships. It's a lot better for you than not smoking, working out, eating, all the things we normally attribute to healthy lifestyles around stress. By far, the most important is our ability to be in relationship. This is what's scaring the heck out of me of something like this, because you know, you're right here. A lot of people isolated together that are strengthening their relationships, but there are all, also a lot of people being cut off there by themselves in houses, which is, we know, such a horrible way of dealing with stress that's why we need to involve reaching out through videos or whatever else right. to connect but that example just to give you you know if you took a marine to guard a space of say 500 feet versus two marines together having a patrol a thousand feet 
I mean, they're patrolling the same space. The only difference is, are they alone to deal with it? Are they with somebody else? When you're with somebody else, it makes all the difference to your nervous system. If you're going to be ambushed, it really doesn't make a difference. Probably one or two are just going to be likely to, to die. But just facing a threat together with somebody else really changes how your brain perceives the threat. There are so many studies today um, that really look at that. I'm trying to think, uh, Dennis Prophet had does this great research at University of Virginia looking at the size of a hill. And if you look at the size of a hill and you put a backpack on, he does this with his students. And then he says, all right, take five steps. And then he says, stop. And just for five steps, he takes their blood. And he's looking what's happening in their blood versus doing it with their friends. You're burning six times more glucose just in those five steps when you're alone than when you're with somebody else. How your brain perceives the stress or the challenge totally influence if you're going to be alone or with somebody else to do it. This is profound. This isn't just like people saying love and it's helpful. I mean, there's hard science that says we are <laughs> wired to deal with stress in relationships. And that makes so much sense. We wouldn't be here if we didn't learn to kind of work together. That is the gift of our species. You know, so we got to honor our nature. And so often, unfortunately, what's happened with modern society is we're becoming more and more lonely, more and more isolated. We are bonding creatures. If we don't bond in healthy ways, we're going to bond in unhealthy ways. So we'll mm -hmm. bond with TV, with shopping, with drugs, you name it, because we are bonding creatures. Well, to go back for a second, I, I find myself curious what you're thinking about as you're walking toward a fire as opposed to away from it or running toward a fire. You know, I, I do think so much of the training kicks in that sees the opportunity that says, hey, there might be somebody that needs my help. I think the most important thing is I got a job to do. If I don't do my job, I let the team down. I put the team at risk. You know, I want to make sure I do my job. So I'm, I'm, I'm mobilizing my energy to kind of get that. So it's almost like when you're on a sporting team, right? It's like you have a position to play. You got to get it done because if not other people, you're going to let down. So you do become part of something bigger than yourself. Sure, there's fear, there's some concern, but that's kind of in the background. Front and center is the mission, what needs to get done and, and heading towards that. So it's relational. It's definitely relational. And that's the irony here. You got all these macho, <laughs> tough, you know, I work with Marines and special forces and, you know, it's, they don't have feelings. And yet what they're doing is 100% based on emotions. They don't want to let their partners down. Yeah, because they'll be called uh, Mr. Cupid or something. They're, uh, yeah, they're going right. to be giving shit. <laughs> They'll be giving shit. You know, and it also feels good when you're part of a team. Yeah, it does. You know, it feels like, you know, you come back and you can just kind of relish your game. I mean, it's, it's horrible and people lose things and, and bad things happen. And, and, and part of you feels terrible about that. But there's part of you that just says, you know, I did what I was trained to do. I was part of a team where we all worked together. Men and get a hard beautiful. time. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, I just said something. There's something really beautiful about that. I agree. I, I agree. And I, my my comment is that men get really a hard time about what they tend to lack emotionally. And I, I just putting myself back to what you began with, which is we've got to kind of affirm the defense. We can't just mm -hmm. try to get out of it or judge it men are given a really hard time because of their lack of emotional awareness. 
and you know portrayed in ways that <laughs> or you know buffoon comes to mind as the as the kind of modern depiction but the way you're framing it there i think re, re- revitalizes part of that relationally toned dynamic and it's almost like how to get it's not just men it people who tend to compartmentalize to recognize the ways in which they are in relationship and to enhance that to amplify that yep and we're 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 in a period of time which is interesting that we are getting cut off from each other quite literally right now Mm -hmm. what do you recommend for people that are separate and isolated, how they envision and imagine this experience? Well, first I wanna go back to the, to the bigger picture that you were saying when you're talking about people who tend to withdraw. Why do they learn to withdraw? Because they've been trained to withdraw. They have not had success sharing their feelings. They've been actively encouraged to suppress their feelings. So the root of the problem, if we want more emotional engagement, They need to have success with their emotional engagement. The problem with most people is they expect too much too fast. And then they send the message that they're disappointed with this withdrawal who's struggling with their emotions. So it really is about when I work with lots of withdrawers, I'm trying to get them to see in the moment, withdrawers are actually a lot more emotional than you think. (laughs) No doubt. They're constantly scanning their partner. They're reading their partner's tones. They're, they're looking, they have perfect time. And whenever you, the, the emotional temperature starts to raise a little bit, they jump in. What do you think's driving their jumping in when they make a joke or they kind of change the topic or whatever move that they have to slow down emotion? That's all based on their emotions. They just don't recognize it. It's outside their awareness. So I'm trying to get a withdrawer to say, oh, did you notice that? Look at what you just did. You got great timing with your laugh. It seems like to me every time that something starts to come up that might might feel awkward or might kind of lead to some some tension, you kind of try to change change that. Right? I love how you're able to do that. Do you even notice that you do that? Like they have to have success when you hold up the mirror so they can see themselves that they are more emotional than they recognize. Right? And as they start to see this, they start to see their own opportunity to do this a little bit differently. Right? All of these all of these moves that they're using in moment live to turn down emotional heat mm-hmm. is all because there's something about it increasing that's threatening. What's so sad is nobody even sees that. Nobody helps them put words to that anxiety, that fear, that concern, whatever it is the moment right before they do their move to turn it down. Right. And that's what I'm trying to get with drawers to see the advantage of actually talking about that place, because if they could share it and have success sharing it, they wouldn't need so many of those defensive moves. Right. That's somebody who's much more flexible. What about the pursuer? What about them? How do you uh, how do you envision their their defense? You know, it's just the opposite side of the same coin. It's, it's, it's just a resilient thing to do when people are leaving you alone and you recognize there's something better that you try to, you try to influence the outcome. You try to get people to do things differently. You try to motivate people to engage. 
they come across as critical and as pushy and as demanding, but that's because there's an anxiety that they're just trying to express. They just want, because every time they express it, it leads to further isolation. They get more and more kind of put in this desperate place. But, you know, I, I like to see a pursuer's anger and criticism as their hope. Right? It's, it's what they're trying to do to create change. Just like the withdrawers going away is their safety. They're not going away because they don't care. They're going away because they're just trying to find a reset, some place of, of peace. So they can, once it calms down, they'll come back out again. But most of the time, the partners take it the opposite. Right? The pursuer takes a withdrawal going away is not caring. It's not about not caring. It's just how they're trying to feel safe. A withdrawer sees the pursuer's criticism as them just saying they're failing and doing it wrong and they're bad. They don't see that that anger is actually the pursuer's hope that things are going to change. It's their way of fighting for the relationship. So it's really, again, I'm trying to help both partners reframe how they see the behavior. Same as stress. I'm trying to get them to see the opportunity, not just the cost of it. And I bet people are banging on your door. <laughs> well, the world definitely needs some help with this. I do too. As I, I like to tell people all the time, I talk about this stuff. It sounds great. And I go home and I fight <laughs> with my wife and screw it all up. So we're in this mess together. That's for sure. I, I got it. Yeah. Sometimes it sucks because you're in this role of doing these things and yeah, you get fights with your wife. And I she... just like right before this podcast came on, I said, yeah, talking to two of my sons who don't want to hear anything I have to say. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> a couple thousand people are going to want to listen to what I have to say. You two don't even want to hear you one word. And I just walked away. They <laughs> laughed and I was good. So. Yeah. yeah. It, I think it's probably best for people in a position that are, that are leading or speaking of these things to notice that, in the last week, there was conflict with my wife and I didn't do a great job. So knowing this shit does not predispose you or inoculate you from getting caught by the same kind of dynamics. Well, you know what I, I, I what I want to add to that is actually, I think that's God's design in this, that mm -hmm. the goal isn't to be perfect and not to fight. There's something really necessary and healthy about fighting because that's where we repair. That's where we change. You know, I don't want to have a perfect relationship where I'm never going to get it wrong because organisms that don't are not open to feedback. Don't change. They actually die. So we need this. We need to be imperfect. And I think that's, that was a lot of the spiritual message that, yeah. you know, every, all the religions out there are saying exactly the same thing as science that there is something necessary about vulnerability, about missing, about darkness, about falling, about descent, all these places that we want to avoid. There's something so essential about that. You know, it's great if I'm loved when I get it right all the time, but actually when I get it wrong, it's probably where I need that love the most. Right. Yeah. And actually this, this is a good, and, and if I jump too far afield, let me know. Cause I think that's such a good point. One of the things that meant so much to me about your book is something I spend a lot of time working with folks on, and myself included being one of those folks, is the, in, the interpretation problem, what I consider to be the interpretation problem, which is the interpre one's interpretation of their own emotional experience. What does guilt mean? What does shame mean? Why do mm -hmm. I feel this shit and why, 
why are there so many ways in which we want it to go away? But you tended to this problem in chapter three, I think, and it was meaningful to hear you deconstruct the various emotional, the purposes of various emotions. Can you riff on that for a little bit? Yeah, I don't remember all these chapters anymore, but I do (laughs) know, you know, I was raised to poo-poo emotions, to just think they kind of got in the way. And I really didn't recognize how wise they are. All an emotion is, it's a signal. It's trying to give you information. It's pretty unwise not to listen to those signals, right? And, and especially these negative emotions like sadness and fear and guilt and shame. Like we want to, you look on Facebook and everybody's showing happy and perfect and smiling. And again, it pathologizes these yeah. more negative emotions. And yet these negative emotions be, often become the most important doorways into people connecting with each other. Right? So you're seeing this, especially now during these days, we need people more than any, any time before. And this virus is leveling the player field. It don't matter how much money you have, what race you are, what religion you are, sexual orientation, right? We're all scared, right? And, and in these places of fear, we do better when people come closer to us, understand when we feel less alone. So it's, it's counterintuitive. It's not, I shouldn't be hiding my feelings. I shouldn't be trying to block them out and just distract myself with TV or something else that there's value in listening to what our emotions are saying, because embedded in them is what we need to get out of those places. So if I don't listen to my sadness, I'm, I'm not going to reach out for help. If I'm not going to listen to my fear, it's not going to tell me what I need to kind of make things safer. So there is so much wisdom in just listening to these emotions and, and vulnerability even the word vulnerability gets, a, it's most of the world sees the old definition of vulnerability being open to attack or weakness, right? It's not something good. Mm-hmm. Therapists love the word. It's like, oh, I, I measure success in tears in my session, right? <laughs> and we're looking at two different objects almost, you know? So I, I look at that old definition and say, people have good reasons why they don't want to show their vulnerabilities, but what they don't recognize in hiding them is that these walls they put up to keep out the bad also start keeping out the good. And you start to see their life vitality kind of shrink over time. People don't tell us that's the cost of walls, but it is. Yeah, I have so many people in my head that are saying, look, it's better this way. I, I think people don't recognize, and I say people, I mean we too, me too. Uh, we don't recognize what's on the other side of that, right? Because we've been operating through the patterns that were given to exactly. us in our developmental history. And exactly. how do you how, talk about the treatment? Um, I mean, how do you, you're, you're working with fellas, people who have been trained in this way. It's effective. It's validated by the community. It, it, there's a, there's a, a positive peer pressure around not being Cupid and not being connected with your emotions. How have you worked to help people move through those very understandable defenses? I, I keep it simple. It's, it's, it's called success in vulnerability. I need to make it safe for them to start putting their foot in the water to kind of let themselves in first and then let their partner or me into these kind of safer, softer places. And when they do, if they have success, it builds momentum to do more of it. So 
stress is God's hiding place. I mean, again, that's the good news. I work with so many couples where you're right. If you're trained to hide that, to push it aside, to never share it. People are pretty set in their ways. They shouldn't do it. Yet I get with drawers to do this all the time. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because within all of us, despite our experiences, there's a longing in all of our hearts that knows better, that knows the best way to deal with this stuff. There's not a baby born that doesn't want to be picked up and get into relationship. That baby's tears, it's protest. It knows the natural. That's our natural language. Emotions are our natural language. Right? If you do the still face experiment, Edtronic, right? everywhere you go on a planet, when parents don't respond to children, you will see that baby, that infant respond. They will protest. And if the parent continues not to respond, that child will eventually learn to numb out and to shut off its feelings. But before any of this stuff happens, there's that longing that wants something different. So I can't tell you how many, you know, I remember this example. I was working with a, a Navy SEAL who grew up in a family, horrific, forced to care, trauma, abuse, no safe attachment, never did emotions, then went off into the military. It was great. He could turn off these emotions. He was great at his job. Right? He had all superficial relationships. And all of a sudden he falls in love. He gets married. The marriage is a disaster. There's addictions and, you know, uh, violence and affairs, you name it. I mean, it was a total mess. And this guy comes into my session and he says to me, George, I know some people say they don't, they don't do feelings. I just want to go on the record to let you know I don't have any feelings. Hmm. So this guy's coming in as a robot, right? And I'm honoring that and I'm getting good giving him all the reasons, you know, trying to build a connection and we're, you know, doing our thing. And then all of a sudden I asked this man, I said, ah, oh, so can you tell me about your daughter? And he's got a three-year-old little girl named Mary. And something like shifts him and immediately he goes, oh, Mary, she's the most amazing thing in my life. Do you know, at night I sit down next to her in her bed and I read her books and I read her books about monsters and dragons. And I tell her, that is your night. I'll always protect you. You're my princess and I'll, I'll always, and he rubs her hair and he gives her a kiss and she falls asleep. How the heck does this man know how to do that? No one has ever done this for him in his life. He should have no idea on how the hell to do this. And yet there's something inside of him that came out with his daughter that knows better. So that would be my message to all these withdrawers listening. I get you think you can't do it. I get you've been trained not to do it but I know better because there's something inside of you that's stronger than all your training. The irony here, I think, is that we withdraw. It, the, the sense is that I don't have any feelings or I don't have access to my feelings, but the withdrawal is because I don't want to feel the feelings I would feel if I, in fact, moved in. And that's that, to me, is... Yeah, you got the feelings. You know intimately those feelings. You may not be as conscious as you think you are of those feelings. Yeah. You don't want to go around that corner. Bingo. And... That is emotional awareness. The part of you that knows you don't want to go there, that's a damn feeling. <laughs> that's right. You're operating every day based on that feeling. You're good at your feelings. <laughs> you just need to hear that. You're making a choice. I mean, what withdrawers are doing is it's not conscious, but the choice they're making is I don't want to go there because when I do, it doesn't work out so well for me. Yeah. I feel worse about myself. It makes things worse in my relationships. I don't want to do that. And they shouldn't if that's what's going to happen. 
And then they get blamed because they don't want to do, which is so unfair. The reason why they don't do it is they were let down when they tried to do it in their past for good reasons. I know we're all trying to do the best we can, but I never met a withdrawer who doesn't want to do feelings, who don't have really good reasons why they don't want to do feelings. And when you start to give them permission for that and you honor how resilient they are and how they've turned this into a strength and that they really like this about themselves and they don't want to lose it, that's great. And you don't want to turn, you know, withdrawers into these big crying emotional beings, right? We just want them to be authentic and more truthful, to be able to talk about something that makes them feel a little bit unsure or a little bit, you know, hesitant. Those are great emotions. Mm-hmm. So I got a theory I want to run by you and see what All you right. think. My theory is that in our kind of certainly in America, but maybe this goes for everybody. We need a committee of marriage and family therapists to provide insight and awareness to systems, how systems function. Because I, I think on a deep level, you as a couples therapist are working with the epicenter of these developmental issues that manifest in a couple. Now, if we look at that in the collective, we have politics and governments and agencies yep, yep. And, and the way they interact, I'm sure are very similar. So what do you have exactly. to say about that? Oh, I love what you're saying. I just, it's been one of my frustrations in my professional life. It's like, how do we get this message out? This is this. There's so much science and and evidence behind what how you have to take two truths and build a bridge and 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 help people understand the good reasons they're missing each other. And before you know it, they start to see their shared humanity and they come closer together. You know, our world is becoming more and more polarized, mm-hmm. and that's 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 scary. You know, I wrote a chapter in my book that the editor didn't even want to put in in True Connection. I had a fictional conversation between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I said, if we can't even imagine bringing these two very different people together, what's the whole point of this? So, yes, I think marriage and family therapists, our job description is to hold multiple truths and to bring those truths together. Right. And I, we need to do this in schools and all these different settings. I go to Israel a couple of times a year. You know, I want to have get involved in those conversations with Israelis and Palestinians, you know, Democrats and Republicans, gay and straight, black and white. There's just so many areas where we really need to have these conversations. So I couldn't agree more. People have great reasons for defending themselves. They have great reasons for getting defensive and yet they get lost in those places and they, they're not able to share kind of those more vulnerable places where they actually would pull them. The beauty of vulnerability is it pulls people closer to us, but we got to feel safe to show it. And if there's not safety, then people are just left with their defenses. Mm-hmm. And it's like a math equation. You get two people left with their defenses. It's not going to work so well. So they're not going to communicate. What was the conversation like between Trump and Hillary Clinton? They, they, it ended in a big hug. <laughs> Bliss. You start recognizing it's they're not so different after all. How'd they, they get there? Have, you know, they, they both, they both are just trying to protect themselves from these common fears and kind of hurts and kind of desires on what's going to work and not work. And, they're so lost in the plans and the logistics and the content. There's no conversation around these emotions, which are basically the same. They're only limited number of ways of dealing with threats and needs. Right? And when you start getting people that talk that language, there's just a bigger foundation on which they can connect with. 
it seems like they're in parallel existence really is they're they're having two totally different conversations isn't that so often you and your wife for me and my wife yeah. too <laughs> yeah. you know, me and my kids i mean this is so just like this virus it's so normalizing across the board you know they're, they're having these same conversations in china as they are in africa you know we just need help and there is a great science now out there to kind of say what helps people communicate effectively and what doesn't work so well so yes, if you can make it happen, I love your theory. However, I can help with that. I mean, this, this world desperately, and I'm hoping, you know, that's the opportunity. I don't want to go back to the world before this virus. I'm hoping this changes things. I'm hoping I'm a different person, you know, and it makes me think of when I think about 9-11. It did bring out the best in people. You know, I'll never forget going down to the site and having thousands of people there cheering and handing out water bottles. And it really made a difference when you were in that, you know, you would dig in and you're not finding anyone alive. And even the, uh, the dogs that were searching, they were getting depressed because it was just, it was a horror scene, right? And having people there really was necessary to lift our spirits and help us keep going, right? So that, that idea of post-traumatic growth, we hear so much about post-traumatic stress and all the bad things that could happen. You know, I didn't know about post-traumatic growth when 9-11 happened. And that's how you started this podcast mm -hmm. off. You're saying, you know, I, I'm not minimizing the negative. Right? If somebody would have told me that 9-11 would change my life for the better the days afterwards when I lost so many friends, I probably would have punched that person in the face. Mm -hmm. but I, I wasn't in the place to hear it. Right. But as the months turned into years, I, I changed and I started to see the opportunities to, for me to be a different person. And if you look at post-traumatic growth, it had the, it's five components that everybody in the world goes, does some of these five components, right? That they have more meaning and purpose in their life after the event that they recognize they're stronger, they're more resilient, that they're battle tested, that this event causes them to see the opportunities in the, in, in the things going bad, that they are more grateful, they have more gratitude, you know, that they recognize maybe they lost things, but their health, the things that they still have, it really makes a huge, it takes more meaning in their life. They become more spiritual. They, they recognize they aren't as important as they were living. Right? They want to be part of something bigger than themselves mm -hmm. in whatever that looks like. And relationships become much more important. And that was my message in Sacred Stress to say, you know, this is the way the, the world operates, the galaxies, the smallest molecule to the largest of galaxies. It's all based on interdependence. There's no such thing as a separate entity. Right? We're no different than that. We are relational creatures. We are designed to be in relationship. All the science is saying that and all the religions are saying it's about the experience. It's about the journey. It's about the process. Right. So I'm hoping something like this reawakens that that kind of awareness in people that that is our essential nature. We got to get closer to what we're supposed to be doing instead of going down this road of of kind of isolation and just, you know, all about self. <clears throat> I completely agree and i think that if i'd have run into you shortly after 9-11 happened and i'd have told you you'd be a more spiritual purposeful person and you punched me in the face it would be because i'm not i'm not meeting you in the shit 
That's right. That's right. It, and that that's the kind of thing that we tend to want to do because meeting you in that dark place makes me experience that kind of darkness. And so I say things that are arguably inappropriate in that moment when I don't want to meet you there. Right. And, and then I get punched in the face, which yep. is pretty understandable, quite frankly. So here we are, right? We're, we're, we're in the middle of something that we all agree is extremely powerful and overwhelming. And the, the way, of course, that every talking head in the world is understanding this is that it's unprecedented. I don't, I, I don't know how, you know, when it comes to disease or the plague or whatever, I don't know how unprecedented this is, but, but what's unprecedented is, is how connected we all are. Immediately connected. You and I are across the country right now, and we're looking at each other's eyes, and we're talking through these technologies, and we're connected in a way that's profoundly different. And so that is unprecedented. And we're all having the same kind of thoughts and feelings and fears and concerns and anxieties and survivor's guilt and all the shit that piles up inside of mm -hmm. our minds. Mm -hmm. So I, I, with all that said, I, I, I'm, I'm curious what you saw after 9-11 and in the aftermath, how people came together and what we might be able to hope for and try to do current day so that maybe the delay is not so great between trauma and, and growth. Yeah, I think education is important. I'm, I'm set up to do better with this event than 9-11 because I now know about post-traumatic growth. I know about things I could be doing. But what did I see? And I'm not oversimplifying this, but I really think people became a lot less selfish and self-focused. They really were thinking about others before themselves after 9-11. They really wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's just something beautiful. I mean, they as parents, we do that naturally for our kids, but it, how do we extend that love outside of our families to our fellow humans to recognize all these differences? You know, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican. That just makes us not want to have conversations you know, that, that's really just making it so much about me. So that's what it just, I can still get goosebumps as I think about none of that stuff mattering after 9-11. Seeing crowds of people of all different shapes and colors and, you know, they were all together. You know, so yes, we're challenged because we can't meet all together. But we can do it. We have some, you know, technology. We have different ways of just carving out that space. For me, it's all about what do we do with this time that we have? We're all locked up in our houses. Like, what are we doing with this time? Are we thinking about other people? Are we being empathetic? Is, is our hearts being touched? Like, when we get a chance to put that into action, are we going to do that? And I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to really want to do things a little bit differently. And I think that's ultimately what, what takes an idea and puts it into action, which is what's necessary for change, right? That, that, like you said, we're having this conversation because we're trying to spark that flame a little bit more with people listening. Like there's a lot we could join together to do. 
to really improve the life and the life of this planet and, and our own lives, to just bring more safety and more vitality and more energy, more range. These are good, exciting things. And I'm not pr proposing that we create trauma, but do you think it takes trauma? You know, I think trauma and stress is, I fall back to that all the time. It's where God hides. It's, you know, when you're so self-sufficient, there's really no room for God or, or people because you got it all figured out. You got it all under control. But when you get something like this virus in a short period of time, it has just knocked the whole world's ability to control things out of whack. And, and we don't like being helpless. And yet, you know, you go to a store right now, you got in the back of your head, what, what could happen here? Mm -hmm. So this helpless feeling is just contaminated all of us. And we either could try to block that out or we can listen to what the helplessness is saying. Right. And the helplessness is saying the way I take it is, you know, you there's been an illusion of control and safety that I've been able to kind of create with my own willpower and my own actions. And yet in doing that, I've kind of lost some of this collective need that this helplessness is saying, I got to return to, I got to be more, pay more attention to the environment, to my neighbors, you know, to my health. There's a lot of things that I'm just blocked out of. Right. And I think this is a big wake up call. I'm hoping it's a reset for us, a correction, a, you know, a chance to, to, to kind of look back and despite all the pain, just like, and it was that way for nine 11. Yeah. You know, I, I lost some, some people I loved and, you know, there's a, a a pain in my heart that I always carry with me. But I, I feel like I've done a good job honoring their memory and being a better man from that moment. And I'm hoping that's, again, the opportunity for this whole disaster, that we all can like ourselves better afterwards. Because to just go back doing the same old things is, you know, that feels like what a waste. I agree. People talking about when's this going back to normal and the thought that I have is, I hope it doesn't. I'm with yeah, you. We want a new normal, right? Yeah. Well, thank you, George. Do you have anything left hanging in closing that, uh, that you think you need to circle back to? Um, one thing I'd like to end with is, you know, Victor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor. Here's another person who knows if you can think about a time like this that, you know, feels something similar. He talked about there would be an event that happens, a stimulus, something would happen in the world. And then, boom, there would be our response to the event. And for most people, it's just immediate. Something happens and they respond. Something happens and they respond. And what he talked about is there's actually a space in between that. Right. And it's in that space that we start to have choice that we just don't have to automatically respond, that we become more intentional when we start to kind of stretch out that space and we start to see new possibilities to do things differently. And I really feel like that's our chance now that stressed spelled backwards is desserts. Right? You can see stressed and feel <laughs> I'm stressed out and feel kind of like your life is ending. <laughs> Or you can see, you know, they, there's some desserts here too. Right? There are things that we could do differently. And 
So I, I love your laughter because we need laughter in this yeah. too. This, we can't be so serious that we, we recognize, we, we stop reminding ourselves of what's, what also matters. And it's, it's enjoying each other, enjoying that laughter. You know, and I'd also like people to know if they wanted more information on me, they could, they could uh, check out my website, georgefowler.com, or I'm actually doing my own podcast for Play Radio, which is really trying to have these conversations around sexuality. As a man, I didn't grow up talking about sex. You know, my, my partners never talked to me about what was working or not working. My friends, we just joked about it. I mean, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, right? So to be with uh, Lori Watson, a sex therapist, to really just, again, try to see the opportunity that avoiding sex talk isn't the way to create safety. It's trying to find ways of doing that that actually, you know, lead to success. Well, sitting with you today, I can understand why people feel willing to open up with you. Well, thank you. You made it pretty easy. I mean, you're <laughs> you're a real guy who's just, uh, you know, this is about being present. And, and I, I really appreciate this time and, and your mission and, you know, your your commitment to trying to make a difference and, and serve your audience and your community. Yeah, thanks, George. I really appreciate it. I'll um, I'll send you the link whenever I, I get it ready, but I will do an intro that includes all your information yeah. and you'll awesome. have links on the liner notes. Yeah, and again, I, we'll see how things, see. who knows if you ever listen. I'm always, you know, I'm crazy busy, but it's <laughs> it's always good to have opportunities and who knows, we get a billionaire listening who wants to do some project and, you know, I was talking <laughs> to Owen Marcus and they wanted to do something with every man and it's just trying to figure out. Yeah. This is we're all talking similar stuff. So we get to, we're building our team and however we can support each other. Come together. Amen, man. Thanks a lot for your all right, time. Brother. All right. Awesome seeing you. I'll be in touch. You too. Thanks. George. All right. Blessings. Yep.
stand still at the speed of light If it's true, would you go and change your life? Around my neck, I can't breathe. You may not think it matters, but it really does. All this matters connected, not just because. You may not think it matters, but it really does. All this matters connected, not just because.